I'm Jeff Cohen. Hanan Kaufman has created or helped create some of the most influential Jewish outreach organizations in the world. Aisha Torah in New York, Jerusalem Fellowships, Israel, and Go Inspire, among others. His path almost included medical school, but a chance meeting led him to Jewish learning, rabbinical ordination, and marriage before becoming a leader in the world of Kirov. There's only one rule about education in the entire Torah. It's chanach lenar lefidarko. You must present the deep ideas and the most important concepts to people in a way that's relevant and geared specifically for them. Hanan Kaufman, thank you for joining me on Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you, Jeff. Give me a sense of, of your upbringing and what your life was like from a, a Jewish perspective as a child. Fairlawn, New Jersey. Well, I grew up in Fairlawn. Uh, I went to uh, Fairlawn High School, went to Hebrew school, afternoon Hebrew school, uh, which was a disaster. And it, with, I graduated with distinction without honors. <laughs> and I probably uh, knew four letters of the alphabet. And I knew one phrase, Sheket Bavakasha. I knew it meant shut up, but I thought it meant shut up or I'll kill you. <laughs> Bavakasha means please. So it wasn't very inspirational. Where are you sitting right now? And what are we hearing in the background? Yeah, I'm sitting in the neighborhood Ramada Shkol, which is a, a lot of Americans, young American couples living here. It's in Jerusalem. It's a very lively neighborhood, lots of little kitties. So let me just go back to your story for a minute. So you're growing up in, in Fairlawn. You're not observant. You, you get through high school. Now you're going to college. So at this point, where did you go to college? And is an observant life anywhere on the radar at this point as you're going through college and what you're thinking about doing career-wise? Uh, no. I went to the University of Maryland in College Park, which had a lot of Jews. And it was interesting. As I matured in high school, I gravitated towards Jewish friends in a natural way. It was part of my maturation, it was part of my personality, and I ended up having more and more Jewish friends. I also had Jewish friends in college, and it was something that was very natural, and, and that sort of guided me in my journey, I guess. I was not a great student, and when I got to college, I decided to buckle down, and I became a really, really good student. I graduated honors, I graduated three and a half years, I was in an honor program in science and biology, and I got uh, into medical school. So I got in, and I graduated early, and there was no question that I was going to put on a backpack and go travel somewhere. And at and, and that time, a friend of mine from Fairlawn had been to Israel. And, you know, they went to kibbutz and that kind of thing. That's, that was very popular back then. My friends told me about Israel. And I, so I got a flight to Israel with a backpack. And I had, it was going to rail through Europe. And I had anywhere from four to five months to do this. And I figured I'll go to Israel first. And I'd work there for a while, then move on. I got to Israel and... The next morning, so I woke up, I had a backpack, and I had a pen, and I look at my map, and I'm marking it, and I wanted to put in my backpack, but I couldn't reach. So I went up to some guy who looked European and had some suitcases. I said, excuse me, do you speak English? And he said, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> I said, wow. I said, where are you from? He says, Fairlawn, New Jersey. You're like, right? whoa. So I said, what's your name? He says, Stu Rexon. So I still, I know you. You know, we went to high school. He said, you're ahead of me. So... He said, look, I'm traveling and traveling. And I, I said, you know, I had the travel bug. I said, well, maybe I'll go to Kibbutz later. We'll travel. We'll go down south to Dahab and Shamar Shek, which was part of Israel, on the Red Sea. So we traveled around in a circuitous route, and we stopped in Jerusalem. We went to the Holocaust Museum. 
And I had never really studied the Holocaust. And I read every piece that was in there at that time. And I came out and I went off to a corner for about 15 minutes and I cried. And Stu had the same reaction I did. He went off to a corner and cried. And then we walked, we walked to the old city and we were walking through Jerusalem. And I was thinking consciously, why am I here? Right? How, you know, I'm here, it's a gift. What does it mean, you know? As we're walking into Jaffa Gate, that right across the street, the old entrance towards Jaffa Gate, Stu looks up, he says, look, it's David Merchant. So David Merchant went to Fairlawn High School with me and Stu, okay? And You're I having a him. reunion in Fairlawn. Yeah, and I knew him well. And he was the valedictorian of our high school a year ahead of me. And he was in Jerusalem, and he met someone at the hotel, tapped him on the shoulder, and he, got, he went to, he was taking classes at a place called Eish HaTorah. And he said to me, at those days, uh, Jews for Jesus and cults were very popular. And he said to me, it's not so glassy-eyed, Jesus freaky. And I'm telling you, if anybody else told me to go there, I would have went, nah. But this guy had <laughs> such credentials. So we ended up checking it out. So when you get this invitation and you decide that you're going to go learn a little bit, are you thinking at that moment that I'm going out of curiosity? Are you thinking this could be the beginning of some kind of journey? I'm wondering where your head is at when you, when you accept this invitation. I wasn't going to learn. I was an inquisitive person. I had a backpack full of philosophy books. <laughs> and, uh, and this was, you know, I, you know, intellectually, it was curious. I was traveling. And this guy is recommending as a very interesting experience. So I'm just checking it out. And I tell you, um, I went into a class, and the guy was talking about, I didn't realize that he was, he was, he was making an argument about the existence of God. And he was saying, since there's a concept in the human experience of morality, it must be that there's a higher being that put that there, and it couldn't have evolved. And I ended up having an argument with him in the whole class because I, I, I had a lot of opinions about that based on what I learned in uh, my psychology and zoology and biology classes of, of evolution. Everything was based on evolution. So we bantered. And... Um, the second person sat down, and he was, uh, he was a rabbi. The other guy was a student, so he said he's a rabbi. And he looked really cool. He was a good-looking man. He had a trim beard. And I never saw a cool-looking rabbi. The only rabbis <laughs> I saw were, like, really out of it. And he went around and took attendance. And he said to me, uh, what's your name? I said, well, I'm just sitting in. So he said, so am I. So a couple of guys started <laughs> laughing. And he said, you know, there's a great, great sage in the last generation who was a leading scholar of the generation and wrote books that were really very, very seminal, important for Jewish thinking and life. And he was known as a very, very righteous man. And he had a, he had a nickname. They called him the Chavetz Chaim. And he <laughs> said, one day there was a man in his generation said, I have to meet this man. I live in this generation. I have to go and meet this man, the Chavetz Chaim. So he asked, where does he live? And they sent him to this tiny, tiny little nothing of a town called Radin. He's incredulous. How could it be? How could it be? This giant lives in this little town. And then he sees, then he said, where does he live? He asked, oh, yeah, he lives here. And it's a small shack of a building. So he goes and knocks on the door. And someone says, come in. He opens the door and he sees a stark room. No shades, no nothing. It's the table, a bench, nothing on the walls, books all around. And this old man leaning over, he says, you know, I'm looking for the 
the you know brilliant you know, all these uh, he said it in Yiddish and all these great, uh, accolades of this genius and righteous man the, the, the Chavetz Chaim and the guy says look I'm not so great he's not so great but I'm the one they call the Chavetz Chaim so the guy says travel he says to him you but where where's all your things he says well where are yours he says I'm just passing through and the rabbi turns to me and says so am I <laughs> We it, was all a are. Great, it was a great line, you know, and he delivered it so well. And I, that stuck with me. I said, that's great. You know, I said, that's good. Great delivery. And I left. And I said, you know, I'm going to come back in three weeks. So I came back in five days. Uh, I spent a week there full time, sort of just going through the classes of Noah's 48 ways and other teachers and all this stuff. And, you know, it's, it's a who's who of Jewish educators. You know, you've seen all their books, Rabbi Zelik Pliskin and Noah Orlowick and others and others, right? And, and the people who were there were, were amazing people. And it opened up the whole world. And in one week, it was literally the most mind-boggling, uh, stimulating experience emotionally and intellectually in my life by far, you know? But this is, this is what I'm so curious about, though. I, I imagine so many people come through those doors. And it's one thing to be stimulated by what you're learning, to debate the rabbis there, to become interested in it. It's another thing to internalize it in such a way that you start contemplating making concrete changes in your own life. So where's that point where it goes from, well, this is cool stuff I'm learning to, maybe I'm learning something about the way I want to live the rest of my life. Well, I think, I think back then it was, it was such an immersive experience, you know, and I think it's different. I think that the gener- every generation is different. And you cannot compare generation to generation. People have to understand that, you know. And I'll say this maybe more than once in this little discussion here, but there's only one rule about education in the entire Torah. And it's, uh, uh, I think, Shlomo Melech, King Solomon, said it. It's, Chanach Lenar Darko. You have to educate the youth according to their way. It's subjective. You must present the deep ideas and the, the most important th- concepts of life in Judaism to people in a way that's relevant and geared specifically for them. So, like I told you, I was carrying philosophy books on my backpack, you know, and I, was, I had time. My future was set, you know. I was, right. I, I was sitting pretty. And I was very, and it, to me, it was very enjoyable and they were really good people. And I wasn't deciding that I'm going to be religious. I was like experiencing it. And of course, as I learned more and I was very open, uh, the ideas made sense to me. So I think that I invested more time there or, or I made decisions of being committed to learn more, not necessarily observe more, based on what I was receiving. And it opened up so many things. Yeah. But there must be a point, though, that you're, you can't check in as frequently as you can today with your family for, with a simple text. But you're, you're talking <laughs> to your family back home who believes you're having fun and, and traveling and enjoying your time before kind of the real world starts for you. There must be a point where the conversation shifts a little bit that I'm getting hooked into something here that might change my trajectory a little bit. I know you see me as a nice Jewish doctor, but there might be something else going on here. T- take me inside those conversations right. and that shift. Right. You know, I was going to med school, right? Mm-hmm. You know, that was the great American dream. They started getting nervous when I started changing my plans. It was very hard for my parents, actually. It was very difficult. They didn't know what was going on. They, they felt, you know, 
Uh, they, they didn't want me to be far away and to stay there. And they said that we don't have your problem with your interest in Judaism. We have a problem with giving up other things. That was the way they put it. So it was a process for them. Uh, and it took many years. The big change for them, I think it was about um, a year and a half after I was here. I went back to America uh, after three months and I, for four weeks and I was in Fairlawn and I decided, I told them I'm going back and I got a deferral from medical school so I could take a year off and decide. At that point, that was a pretty heavy decision. And that was a big commitment. And again, it, it came out of, like, say, three months or so, three or four months of total immersion. So I had a lot to draw on, but it was a very heavy decision and a very difficult one. And there was very little support for me to do that when I came back to America. Right, but was the feeling within your family when you're having those kind of heart-to-heart discussions, look, I'm deferring this because I'm going to explore Judaism for another year, and it's kind of 50-50 after that, I may then come back to go, or you're already planting seeds like, and you know what, that deferral might turn into not going. They were deathly afraid of that. And I said to them, you know, it's funny because you used to force me to go to Hebrew school. Now I want to explore, you know, my Jewish roots on a pretty high level. And you're like fighting me. <laughs> I said, what's going mm-hmm. on? What's so bad about that? <laughs> you know, There was a big turning point when they came a year and a half later to Jerusalem to visit. And they came. And uh, they saw the students and they saw the teachers. And they said they could understand much better what I was doing. And that was a big deal. After I got... Uh, engaged, everything changed. They were like, ooh, <laughs> grandkids. <laughs> These Orthodox people have grandkids. <laughs> they That's were the like dream. All over it. And my wife had a very similar background. My in-laws were, you know, very much like my parents. They lived in New Jersey and they, they totally related. And it changed the whole game. And then, you know, uh, we moved back to America after getting married in Israel living here for a year and a half, and I got Smikha Aish, and I didn't go to med school. I decided not to. It was a very difficult decision, but I, I had really had a year to think about it. And it was a very, and, and I don't regret that decision at all, although I like science and stuff, it was a good thing. And I went back to America, uh, and we started Aish Torah in New York. I ended up being a rabbi for Aish Torah. And uh, the reason I bring it up is we had a lot of had kids, and my parents and my in-laws were extremely engage with my family and my children even though they were completely secular and uh but they came and they were there and they were they're just the greatest grandparents you could ever have <laughs> excuse me and in hindsight <laughs> my parents couldn't be happier mm-hmm. uh, we were very successful with our children uh, even though my wife and i came from a very secular backgrounds uh, all our children are very engaged Jewishly uh, in a very deep way, in a very involved way. And they've all lived in Israel uh, at different times. And uh, they all want to live here. And three of them are, are here now, you know, hopefully permanently. Today, my father-in-law, my mother-in-law passed away a year ago. My father-in-law has 50 great-grandchildren who are all Orthodox. Wow. And my parents have like... Uh, what do we have? I, we have thirty something. I don't want to say the number, but it's you know it's a growing it's a growing number. But we're well into the thirties, and so um, it's just unbelievable. They are the richest secular Jews in the world. But I want to dig a little deeper on this idea that you could have come home and said, "Look, I, I've chosen to live an observant life. I'm still going to medical school. I'm still going to have 
that career, but I'm gonna I'm marrying someone, and we're gonna we're both we're observant. We're gonna raise observant kids, and I'm gonna be a doctor. And there's plenty of people today who are balancing both. So what was it for you that said, not only am I gonna live this life, but I, I'm gonna even change my career and and work in this area? Right. So. Yeah, this is 1980. I got there in March 1980. It was pretty young. And I needed to learn, you know, I knew that. I, one thing I learned from me is I needed to learn, you know. The other factor for me was that I was studying under Rev. Noah Weinberg at Eshatera at its young stage. So the message was very clear that we need to make a movement. Rev. Noah was looking to raise a cadre of a leadership that would create a revolution in Jewish identity. So, you know, it was part of the message, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and it resonated with me, you know? And, and many, many people, back then, many, many people came through, loved it, and vast majority left to pursue their lives and careers, wherever it was. And the vast majority of them did not become observant. You know, it was it. Some did. The people who stayed, you know, they have a great, CV of what they've accomplished for the Jewish people. So it's a privilege to have been, or to be part of that uh, group. Well, it sounds like you were getting a story of, I'm going to transform your life, and then there's an expectation that you're going to pay it forward and transform other people's lives. And it seems like that kind of message really resonated with you and kind of fueled the whole direction you, you went in after that. Yeah. But there's another thing also, see, Rav Noah, he was, he was a very unique person. Uh, this is something, him and the Lubavitch Rebbe at that time were, were the two most uh, giants or uh, most driven people you'll ever meet. And, and very, very talented people and, and very learned people. Uh, and then there were other people that were out there, but, and they understood the desperate need <laughs> to, uh, to reach out and to educate and engage the uninitiated Jews. Or we're going to lose them. And we did. We've lost millions of Jews in America. Millions. As many as they lost in the Holocaust. When I say lost, did they die? No. But Assimilation. They don't have any kids. Or they don't have Jewish kids. Or they're gone. So, you know, it's just Jewishly. I mean, maybe their DNA is still around. But I would argue they probably don't have too much DNA out there. But it's, it's, it's a spiritual uh, destruction. A spiritual Holocaust, what we could call it. And, uh, so take, take me inside that, that time in New York. How are you starting to talk to Jewish people you're meeting and trying to like spark that flame? Like, How are you trying to take what you had just learned and incorporate into what you're doing in New York? I came to New York. First, I went to L.A. to train. And I was, uh, New York did not have an active branch. We had one in St. Louis. Uh, we had a very vibrant program in Toronto, a new, a new one, and in Los Angeles. Very successful programs. Those were the three branches of Eshatora, and I was the first one to start a branch in New York without a, a, a lay leader to bring me there. They went to these places because someone in the community took the responsibility to make them successful and help out. So I was, uh, so I went and got trained in LA, and actually the main teacher, this fantastic, brilliant teacher, was the same one who was teaching the class in Israel the first time, Malcolm mm -hmm. Braverman. And, um, so I spent seven and a half months there. Uh, you know, it was a little crash course in fundraising and building, building a Aish branch in a very sort of grassroots way. Um, and then we came to New York and we started New York. Now, 
anybody, you know, people like myself and all the guys who went through Aish, uh, we got smicha, you know, in parts of uh, Jewish law. But really, our rabbinical expertise was in outreach. I mean, you know, five and a half years at Aish Torah, I've taught, I learned, you know. Uh, we had the greatest teacher in the world, most innovative person in the time in cure of content, uh, conceptually. And I, you know, so we, we knew how to speak to the uninitiated Jews. This is the question of getting them in the room and getting people to back us so we can do this job. So I was there to mostly fundraise. And I did, and I brought out a teacher, uh, David Kleinman, and we opened up a, a center in New York City. You know, and it grew, and it affected a fair amount of people. For, I did that for seven and a half years, and then I started something else. But give me an example of that, of the hook, of what, how are you talking to someone you're meeting? What's, what's getting them in the door? What's getting them turned on, say, I'll give this a shot? And, and how are you getting them in, like, that pipeline? Well, I mean, you have to remember, Noah was the, the marketing wizard of quick, pithy ideas <laughs> that had tremendous depth and engagement. So I had no problem dealing with that. And then seeing how they operated in America, which was very different than Israel. You know, in Israel, someone comes in, they're coming into the, the nest, you know. They're in Jerusalem, and they're out of their, their environment. And, uh, you know, it's, 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 uh, they can gain immense amounts in a very short time. In America, you're on their territory, you're in their place. So you really, you have to direct the engagement on what their needs are. And I think that the number one need or interest was love, dating, and marriage. Even for a while, we call it love, sex, and marriage, just to make it a little sexier. But we, 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 we toned it down a little bit. <laughs> and uh, we had content. We had uh, a, teach, a lot of teaching that was revolved about relationships. So we get young professionals, singles come, and they were, you know, that was a big issue for them. And what you do is you find someone who, you know, here's the message, you're one-on-one, -on -one, you've worked with them a little bit, and they have an apartment or a place, and let them invite their friends over, home groups. Mm -hmm. So it's really not threatening. You don't want to institutionalize it. You don't want to make it a synagogue type thing. It's not ritual. You know, we were different than Chabad. And at that time, Chabad in New York City was very, very small, if not very... They didn't have a presence really much. We were in Manhattan. And, uh, you know, they would make it experiential. You know, let's put on some tefillin. Let's have a Shabbat meal or something, right? Here, ours was primarily values and ideas. Wisdom. Wisdom for living, right? And you back that up with Shabbat and community. Mm -hmm. And you put it all together. It's a formula that's very inviting and very enriching for people. But your story doesn't stop there. You end up going to other unique and interesting organizations after your time in New York. Now, I know we can't cover all of it, but give me a sense of one or two of them and how those ideas evolved from what you were doing at Asia Torah in New York. So some of my associates came from Israel. They started the Discovery Program. That was a very big movement, with the Discovery Seminar to America, uh, which was a very powerful uh, weekend program that touched many thousands of lives in a profound way. So that was going on. And so I was sort of uh, looking to do more. And at that time, there was an Israel program called the Jerusalem Fellowships, which started in 1985, the first trip. It was a very innovative trip. It was 15 years before birthright. 
We would bring subsidizing trips. Uh, you basically they had paid airfare, but it was free otherwise, for young men and women from college to come explore Israel, their Jude Jewish roots, Jewish values, and the, the geopolitical scene, which we now call Hasbara. And uh, it was extremely successful uh, as a program, uh, very unsuccessful sustainability because it was very expensive and Aish couldn't handle it. And it sort of died in the water after a couple of years. So I came to Jerusalem for a meeting with the greater Aisha Torah, and I said, you know what? I think I'm going to take over this, this program, and I'll raise the money, I'll recruit the students, I'll work with someone here, and I'll bring the groups to Israel, bring a summer group to Israel. And in 1991, I did the first trip. That was the beginning of my career in Israel trips, which is a big portion of it, most of the stuff I've done. And um, I handed over to H. New York to a guy named Yitz Greenman. But I was fortunate because the Jerusalem Fellowships became a big deal. And we built it up, we built it up. Uh, we started opening up centers and campuses, building leadership when we brought the students to Israel. We had a very high caliber of students. Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan was our honorary chairman. And he got Chaim Herzog, President Chaim Herzog, to be the uh, other honorary chairman. And we would be able to recruit very high-level students who had no background in Judaism to come on our program because they would meet with the top political leaders in the Knesset, the prime minister, foreign minister, all these people. So it was very attractive and interesting for all of us. And then we would take them these intense hikes around the country and then have, have classes, you know, a la Eishat Torah, which was, you know, end up being the most important part for them, for them. So it was an amazing ride. And many, many people over the years went through those programs and became um, really great leaders in the Jewish people. So now you've mentioned the fundraising side of this a few times, and I'm, I'm wondering, what is the pressure like of, I have this great program, I can influence so many Jewish people with it, but if I can't convince X number of people to give Y number of dollars, this thing's going to fall apart. What is the pressure on the fundraising side of this whole equation? Well, you know, so many good and important things happen because they're sold to people to buy into it. And I've learned over the years that people buy into things because they want to get money back from an investment and so on. But truthfully, the smartest people in the world and the best people in the world who have assets appreciate investing in things that will change people's lives and have an impact, whether they're doing it for hospitals or they're doing it for charities to help poor people. But that attracted many people to Asia Torah. And Asia Torah discovered that our donors, for the vast majority of the time, were completely uninitiated Jews. Most Orthodox Jews did not appreciate our message, right? I mean, you know, it, it became more mainstream as time went on. But in the old days, you know, it wasn't their thing. Their kids were Orthodox. They had their own cause. They had plenty of things to support and take care of in their own communities. So they didn't relate. It wasn't desperate for them. And they were overwhelmed with charities. But we can meet business people, and we did it methodically. And we would approach them, and we would, I would say to them, you know, this, my approach was, and I learned from my, my, we shared these ideas amongst us, the different branches and so on, was like, look, you know, this is what we're doing. We're battling assimilation, which is something you could say back then, you know. And we're, <laughs> we want to keep the, it's Jewish survival. And if we don't teach Jews the why and the beauty of their heritage, they can't choose it. And what's going to be is that, you know, they're going to just disappear. 
And, and they all knew that. So we said, well, how do we do it? We've developed, you know, Robert Weinberg and I, we've developed techniques, tools that we can really get them. And I myself, I'm a product of school. And I just <laughs> had to go in there, right? And here I am reaching out to the world. So we want to make more people like me and other people. So they said, great. That's one thing. Second thing is that we said, but look, I don't want to ask you for money. I could ask you for money now. Yeah, give me a few bucks. Very nice. But I want you. I want you. You know, I'm going to get you. You and I are going to study together. And I'm going to show you what we do with our students. And it's exactly what we could do. And we developed relationships and they understood what we're doing. And for over the years, our prospect donors became our students, our friends, our partners and our contributors. And that's how we that really it, it really resonates with me because three of my closest friends now are people that were Chavrusas. And you, you think you're starting off studying together, but you take little breaks and you, you start to become invested in each other's lives and you're really hooked into beautiful. these people. <laughs> but I think what, what I see you doing now, it seems like your model has changed about how you engage Jewish people. When I was reading about um, how you organize trips now, that, that the model has changed from what you were doing, say, 20 years ago. So uh, take right. me on that, on that journey. Why did that change? Well, the world changes. I look at myself as a social entrepreneur. I, I love to, to build organizations. I love to understand the market and the need and, and go through it. So. I've always experimented with new projects and new ideas, and I've started new organizations. A lot of them revolve around the Israel trip. But there was also things going on at the same time. You know, Birthright told me that idea they got was influenced by the Jerusalem Fellowships, you know. Except they had super duper gigantic donors, that, you know, and they were, you know, they had a, a billion dollar budget. We had to scrap it together. And when Birthright started, they, I went to them, I said to them, you can't exclude us, you know. So we became <laughs> one of the original uh, groups, organizations that was part of Birthright. Uh, but it wasn't really for us. What it did is it, it didn't really, we didn't really find our place with it. I, I, I merged our initiative with the OU, uh, with Israel Free Spirit, and I gave him my staff, and I said, here, I work with David Felsenthal. And we focused on sort of the, the next trip. And we, were, we had campus stuff going on before Birthright came, came around. We shifted over to campuses saying like, what, well, look, why don't we have what's called built-in follow-up? You know, rather than have people, recruit people randomly from around the world and then bring them on trip and have spaghetti and throw it against the wall, hope somebody's gonna stick and stay in Jerusalem, we need to be more sophisticated. And we need to make it more communal. So if we put uh, a family or uh, uh, people on a campus and they're there, they establish themselves. They introduce them to the, many of the experiences of Judaism, a Shabbat meal, meetings, you know, a Kiruv rabbi with his yarmulke and his beard or whatever it is, and having some orientation and then coming on a trip with them. And then we designed the experience in Israel and the educational content based on, on the personality of the person bring, coming in, based on the level of his students, you know and fine-tune that experience, and then they go back with them and they could follow them up. So that was a big breakthrough. And then we also designed other programs like the Hasbro Fellowships, which was focusing on the rising Arab activism on campuses that was anti-Israel. And we had a counter that in the second Antifada in 2001. We started the Hasbro Fellowships. So we started 
taking a piece of the Jerusalem Fellowships, which is the geopolitics, and working on that. And then we realized that people were coming in trips, they need to take it another step. So they have to come back or go to a next program that would be appropriate for them. So we created a girls program and a boys program that was Jewel and Essentials, where instead of methodically sending them rather than relying on people just traveling through Israel. So they came, we had such numbers that they would come through a graduate star program, could stay on or come back and go to these things. So we started the Wolfson family, Wolfson Foundations, which now is called Olami, being involved on college campuses and running Israel trips to bring 10,000 students on, you know, immersed outreach trips in four years. So I'm just curious, as someone who has all this experience over all these years, what messaging is working today in this era of social media and instant gratification versus how you could approach this 20, 30, 40 years ago? What, what works now? I don't know. That's honest. It's honest. I'm, I'm 63 years old, and uh, every generation is different. And, you know, back then, when we reached out, we were college students. We knew exactly what to say to college students. And we were young professionals, married. We knew exactly how to talk to our peer group. And when we got older and had kids, we knew how to deal with families, right? I could do cure with seniors all day long. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and I, I know I probably wing it with younger people, but um, it's a different world, you know? And the world's changing faster and faster. And look what's going on now. What's the message? What are they hearing, right? It's radically changed in the last few years. Radically. So, like I said before, you have to educate a person to where they're at. Feed dark cold. So you have to understand where they're at and talk to them. And no one understands that better than young people. So I've spent a lot of time, I've traded a couple of organizations, uh, Nextdoor and other initiatives, focusing young people who have a passion, an idea that they want to develop something, and teaching them the business skills on how to build an organization and make a movement. If Nolk used to say, people make an organization, and an organization makes a movement. So on that principle, I want to help them make very sustainable, effective, business-like nonprofit organization. I started an organization called Next Door, which is what that's about. And we work with about, a, a, about 80, to 80, almost 90 organizations. You know, that's very valuable. So I'd like to do more of that, and I do on an individual basis, uh, but it's very important. So I feel like, you know, it's, it, it, it's, it's a young man's game. It's a young woman's game. You have to relate to where they are. You have to know their culture. When you're dealing with Sephardi, we're dealing with Persian Sephardi versus uh, Moroccan, they're different. If you're dealing with um, people in South America, they, they all have their idiosyncrasies in their cultures, and you have to speak their language to be able to make that connection and share the common values that they don't even know exist. That's beautiful. And coming from someone who spent their life meeting just thousands of people who are on these journeys, I appreciate that coming from you. And it's a, it's a perfect transition into the five super fast lightning questions I'm going to ask you to close out the interview. So get ready. Okay, I'm ready. All right. Question number one. If you could go back, what would you tell the non-observant version of yourself as a child about living an observant life? Uh, I would wait till we grew up a little bit. We could hear it. <laughs> yeah. what, what age would you give it? College. <laughs> College, because you, you get to a point where you're, 
you're emerging as, as, as a person and you're struggling with who you, your own identity. And that's when you're asking questions. So the message to you, the five-year-old version of yourself would be, call me in 15 years, we're going to have a nice chat. Yeah, or chill, you know, have a nice time. You're cute. <laughs> Feel good about yourself. Be happy. Question number two, what do you think is the biggest misconception about living an observant life? Yeah, Bill used to say this, and I'm saying it myself, you know. They have no idea how much fun we're having. <laughs> it doesn't look good from the outside. <laughs> but, and the misconception is, is how rich life can be if you live a, a very motivated, disciplined life. Question three, let's say you have now inspired someone on this podcast who hasn't ever taken a step towards an observant life. What would you recommend would be a great first thing or first step for someone to do who's inspired by the words they're hearing from you today? Well, really, you know, there's so many avenues online and there's tons of stuff to read or listen to um, out there. You know, h.com is a good place. Chabad. Explore. Can you imagine... You know, someone's living in dire poverty for year after year after year, and he's living in a, a, a broken-down shack of the original house of his father, and, you know, he doesn't know. And then he finds out, many years later, someone tells him, you know, your father buried a treasure right in the middle of your living room, and all you had to do was just, like, you know, dig it up, and there's millions and millions of dollars there. So that's the Jewish people, you know, search, go look, you will find Go learn and go learn because there's so much there and it open up your eyes. And that's the perfect lead into my last lightning question. Let's say you've yeah. inspired someone not only to change their life, but to say, I also want to get involved in Kirov. What do you think is the first step there for someone who wants to, to play a role? Well, you know, same thing I do. Investigate, ask people. I'm always looking to do new things. Rabbi uh, Jonathan Sachs, you should, I'll have a show him, uh, passed away not so long ago. Such an artistic, a beautiful guy. He gave a short little thing, and he explained that the things that you do well and you're passionate about and you really enjoy, when they match up to things that are needed by other people and are missing, when you match them together, then you know you're doing God's work. So you have to look at yourself, right? Jeff, you know, this is something you have a passion with. You do it well, and, it, and it's needed then you're doing the right thing. That is beautiful. Kanan Kaufman, I want to thank you so much for joining me on Saturday to Shabbos. It's been a privilege to have you. Thank you. It's a privilege to, uh, to join you. And I, I wish you well. It should be very successful. Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our executive producer is Rabbi David Pardo. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit taklismedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media dot com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at TachlisMedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.